As I said, Paul is writing together with Timothy to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians. And as you might guess, it's the second letter that they've written to these Corinthian Christians. And in this second letter, one major theme is that Paul is justifying his own ministry, legitimizing his own ministry, and, and bringing the Corinthians a correction telling them to stop listening to false teachers, these so-called super apostles, uh, who are leading the Corinthian church astray, and instead to stop listening to those guys and to listen again to he and Timothy instead, as they once did. Make room in your hearts for us, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2. But just as Small children sometimes, when corrected, will say things like this. You don't love me. Which implies a double charge against the parent. One, it implies that the parents are doing something unloving and wronging them in that very action. Secondly, it, it implies the charge that the parent's heart is not really for the child but that the parent's heart is against the child. When a, when a kid says something childishly, like, you don't love me, both of those things are wrapped up in it. And Paul anticipates a kind of childlike rebuttal and a kind of childlike charge that the Corinthians may offer when he brings this correction and legitimizes his own ministry in their eyes. That they might be something, say something like, you don't love me. Remember, this is not going to be a Zoom call. This is not going to be a, a, a WhatsApp conversation in which there can be live responses and immediate rejoinders to whatever is said. This is a letter. And so as Paul sends it, he wants to anticipate possible objections to what he's saying and deal with those things. And so, as he is encouraging them to stop listening to the false apostles and say, hey, look, we are legitimate and you should listen to us. He anticipates this kind of childlike charge. You don't love me. You don't love us. You have wronged us. And your hearts are not really for us. Paul anticipates that the Corinthians might feel this way. And so Paul makes two affirmations in the passage we're looking at tonight, 2 Corinthians 7, 2 and 3. The first affirmation is, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. And the second affirmation that Paul makes is, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And it is the substance of these two affirmations that I would like to focus on tonight Understanding them in their proper context with respect to Paul and Timothy and the Corinthian Christians, but with a desire to apply what we can learn from that situation and what Paul says to ourselves here tonight with a desire to further shape and mold the culture of this young congregation here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church as we move into 2023 together. So first, Paul says... We have wronged no one. This is the most basic requirement of Christians relating to one another. We ought not to wrong each other. We ought not to corrupt one another. 
We ought not to take advantage of one another. Churches ought to be the safest communities in the world in which you will not be wronged, in which you will not be corrupted, in which you will not be taken advantage of. Paul testifies to his own innocence in matters like these, anticipating that the Corinthians may respond childishly to his admonition to separate themselves from false teachers and to re-embrace he and Timothy. He says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. But sadly, that's not always the way it is. We know it. The people inside the church are sinners too. Blood-bought people with new hearts who are therefore, because they have new hearts in a very real sense, new. But they are sinners still. We still battle against remaining corruption. And as the Apostle John says in 1 John 1.8, if anyone says he's without sin, he deceives himself. So the reality is that you may still be hurt even within the church, even inside the church. You may be wronged. You may be corrupted. You may be taken advantage of. But it ought not to be so. It ought not to be so at all. But for sure, it ought to at least happen less inside the church than outside in the world. Where, for all, for all intents and purposes, there is no Bible. There is no Holy Spirit. There is no grace, and so forth. Obviously, I don't mean that these things don't exist outside the church, but they're not utilized. They're not acknowledged. They're not recognized. Inside the church... Where we have the Word of God as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Where we have the presence of God among us by His Spirit. Where we have the grace of God celebrated and promulgated. Let the benefits that we enjoy as God's people in the church. And let our consideration of one another as the children of God and as the apple of God's eye. Let these things restrain us from wronging one another, from corrupting one another, from taking advantage of one another. Let our consciences be clean in this this matter, and not just our consciences, but let us be objectively innocent of these things in our dealings with one another. This is elementary, so I won't belabor the point. When When it doesn't happen the way it should, It's never because people didn't understand that they weren't supposed to wrong one another. That they weren't supposed to corrupt one another. That they weren't supposed to take advantage of one another. This is a really elementary doctrine. So let me not take an inordinate amount of time explaining a simple concept. Just one more thing though before I do move on. Paul clears himself and Timothy from the charge that they have wronged the Corinthians in some way merely by being their teachers and instructors and fathers in the faith, as he says they are back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He is insisting on the point that he has not wronged them simply by correcting them or exhorting them. He is not being unloving and harmful to correct and exhort. 
So I would just say this, and we should note this, that if someone claims to have been hurt by the church, it may be the case that they have been, but we shouldn't assume just because they have been corrected or exhorted that therefore they have been hurt by the church in the way that people sometimes claim. Sometimes what happens is people sin in some matter, someone confronts them about it, and then they run from the church and talk about how the church has hurt them and how they've been burned by the church in the past, right? So Paul is innocent in this matter, but he's not innocent of correcting them and exhorting them, right? He's innocent of harming them. He's innocent of wronging them. He's innocent of corrupting them. He's innocent of uh, taking advantage of them. But he's guilty as charged in that he has corrected them and exhorted them, right? So let's move on. This is a simple point. We ought to follow Paul and Timothy's example in not wronging anyone, not corrupting anyone, not taking advantage of anyone. Now, with that aspect of the Corinthians' anticipated resistance to his letter in mind, he clears himself of the other side of the anticipated charge that he doesn't really care for the Corinthians. The way that a child might tell a parent, you don't love me, when being corrected. Since Paul is writing to them, challenging them, exhorting them, telling them they're wrong and they've got to separate themselves from these false teachers and they need to listen again to he and Timothy, he's anticipating that they might be like, you've wronged us. You don't really care for us. Why should we listen to you? Paul insists to the contrary, you are in our hearts. This is in verse 3. To die together and to live together. In other words, our heart is for you. Though we exhort you, though we correct you, it's not to condemn you. I do not say this to condemn you, he says in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 3. I don't wish your damnation. Our heart is for you. We are not against you such that we wish that you would be condemned and that we would be justified. I do not, we do not wish that you would die while we would go on living. No, in our hearts we consider that we are in this thing together. We are in this Christian life together. If we go down, then we go down together. Paul is making a statement not about geographic togetherness. When he says, to die together and to live together. And we know that since the Corinthian Christians reside in Corinth. And Paul was not committed to staying in Corinth long term. Nor is Paul making a statement about the togetherness that comes from a shared commitment to the same local church. Because we know that the Corinthian church was neither Paul's home church nor his sending church. But simply a church with whom he had relationship. Rather, Paul is simply making a statement about disposition to clear himself and Timothy of the charge that their heart is not really for the Corinthians. Paul is saying, our hearts are for you. We are in this together. 
we think of your fate with the same seriousness and good intentions as we think of our own. As we think about application, we should know that Christians are not required to stay together geographically, nor even necessarily to remain connected to the same local church in perpetuity. However, Paul petitions these Christians in 2 Corinthians 7-2 to make room in their hearts for Paul and Timothy. Whether or not we are physically and geographically together or not, whether or not we are part of the same local church, we ought to endeavor, again here, to, to follow Paul and Timothy's example and to listen to their instruction to make room in our hearts for one another. We ought to have that same kind of disposition that Paul and Timothy had toward other Christians. Certainly not against our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also neither, but neither ambivalent towards other Christians. But to have them in our hearts. To be able to say to other Christians, you are in our hearts. And to consider their faith with the same interest and good intentions as our own and somehow being wrapped up together. That their fate is ours and our fate is theirs to die together and to live together. Obviously this is not required to the same extent and degree towards all Christians everywhere. In fact, it, it would be odd and, and dysfunctional and perhaps even sinful to show no greater concern for your brother in the next pew than for some Christian in a foreign land. But there is a general sense in which we need to make room in our hearts toward all Christians everywhere. Irrespective of location. Irrespective of denomination. Irrespective of any other thing which may distinguish us from them. And yet at the same time, we really ought to have a greater concern for those in greater moral proximity to us. And most of all in our own local church. A healthy church culture is one in which not only does no one wrong, corrupt, nor take advantage of one another, but also is one in which brothers and sisters make room in their hearts, one for another. A healthy church is a church in which brothers and sisters consider the welfare of their brothers and sisters in that local church with the same sort of intensity as they think about their own. To die together, to live together, to make room in their hearts, one for another. A healthy church culture is one in which the brothers and sisters have a sense that they are in this together. Paul and Timothy give us a good example here, but there's also an explicit command here. Make room in your hearts for other Christians. With that in mind, a few points of application. As we go into 2023 together as 
this small little church here in Barbados, I think we would be setting the bar pretty low if we say, let's make it our aim not to uh, wrong each other. How about we try not to corrupt each other and not to take advantage of one another? All right? This would be a successful year if we could just avoid doing that. Right? You see how, you see how that's like kind of the, the most basic minimum standard. What we really should be aiming at is making room in our hearts one for another. And creating a church culture in which we, we make room for one another in our hearts such that we can say to one another, you are in my heart. To die together and to live together. We're in this together. We wish one another well. We pray for the well-being of one another. But then as it says in James chapter 2, if you say to somebody, go, be warm and well fed. And then you do nothing about it. What good is that? Likewise, if you, if you come to a, a brother or sister at CRBC next Sunday, you say, you're in my heart. You know, to die together, to live together. I care about you. Wish you well. And yet you do nothing to actually care for one another. What good is that? Right? That's just, that's just pretentious hypocrisy. It's, it's a sanctimonious false piety which outwardly appears like something but isn't actually anything, right? It's just saying, go be warm and well fed. So we don't want to just be a church that talks about having one another in our hearts to die together and to live together, but we actually want to be in this together. So... What could you do to follow through on that? Um, as I mentioned this morning, many years ago, a saint said, the things we pray for give us grace to labor for. Right? So as we have one another in our hearts and wish each other well, let's work for it. So put your gifts to use. And I'm going to give you two subcategories of gifts, all right? One is skills and one is resources. So skills could be anything from preaching to simply just offering a word of encouragement to like sweeping up and, you know, washing the bathroom sink or whatever, right? Some people are better at some things than others. My wife likes it when I wash the dishes, but not when she's around. Because it drives her crazy how long it takes. I'm, I'm always trying to make sure those things are like clean enough to perform surgery on. Every, every crumb, every little bit of grease, gone. So she's happy if she leaves in the morning and comes back and the dishes are done. But if I'm standing there at the sink, okay, come on, just let me do it. <laughs> All right, I don't have the gift. I don't have the gift. Or some of you might say, I do, and Mel does it. <laughs> but but some, things are, some, things are better, some people are better at things than others. Right? In all seriousness, if you have a gift of cleaning stuff and, and sweeping and washing, like maybe, maybe you do that for work, then you could bring that gift and help in the church building. 
Some people have a particular gift of encouragement. It's listed explicitly in the scriptures. And they're very good at just uplifting the people around them and, and putting a little bit of wind in their sails. Right? Other people have a gift to, to minister the word of God. Other people have a gift, you know, perhaps to help with the music in the church. Right? Whether by playing an instrument or singing or whatever. There are various ways in which we can practically love and serve one another. We need to think about what we have been entrusted with by way of skills by God and how we can put those into action such that we're not just saying that we have one another in our hearts, but that we're actually exercising that skill with which we've been entrusted for the good of our brothers and sisters, right? So skills and then resources, all right? So, so some people have more money than others. Let's be frank, right? And to whom much is given, much will be required. The same thing, the same thing goes with time. Some people have more time on their hands than others, right? And so, you know, for example, like the single mom working two jobs or three jobs to take care of her kids shouldn't be expected to volunteer as much time in the church as, you know, perhaps a, a retired person who's financially stable and yet nevertheless still able-bodied and sharp-minded and very much ready to, to do stuff and has the time, right? Different, different, different levels of resources, whether it's money, whether it's time. And then people have different levels of... I, 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 I'm going to say it this way, like like psychological resilience. Right, maybe that's a, maybe a bit too much of a technical term. But what I mean by it is this, like some people can just handle doing more than others. And some people can't. And whether that's, whether that's immaturity, that they're just, they, they haven't really developed fortitude or strength of character to do more. Whether or not there perhaps is like mental illness involved, like anxiety or depression, or whether there's, um, as, you know, someone's going through a, a time or a season in their life where they are got a lot of emotional drains on them in other ways and they're less available during that season, whatever. And some people are just like, they just seem impervious to emotional pain and damage. And they're just like, you're like, how are you doing? Do you need to take a break? They're like, no, I'm good. Just always ready, always available, never seem to be overwhelmed, never seem to be burnt out, never seem to be discouraged, just ready to go, like the Energizer Bunny, right? There are, the reality is that we have all been entrusted with different levels of resources, money, time, psychological resilience, whatever, right? So skills and then resources, all right? You should think about what are your gifts? What have you, what have you been entrusted with by way of skills and resources? And how could you make sure that you're not just a talker, but also a doer? Such that you don't just say, I have, I have you in my heart. But you actually put into practice, I have you in my heart. To die together and to live together. Right? We're going to do this together. Here at CRBC this year in 2023. I pray the best for the church. As an organization, I pray the best for my brothers and sisters in it, individually and by family units, as I make my prayers before God, and I bring y'all before the Lord, right, and, I, and, and you do the same. How can I 
actually bring myself to labor for the things for which I pray. Now, the other thing that we ought to think about contributing to the church in addition to our gifts is our non-gifts. Alright, let me explain this. The scripture says two things relevant to this point. A live dog is better than a dead lion. Next. Better a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. Okay? Some people are especially gifted at one thing or another. But sometimes, you're the neighbor nearby rather than the brother far away. Sometimes you're the live dog instead of the dead lion. Right? In other words, there may be a particular need that comes up in the church. A brother or sister has an issue of some sort or, or something happens. And it's maybe not your area of gifting. God is pleased not only when we use our gifts for the good of his bride, but even when we use our non-gifts. So the widow's might, we remember this one, right? Everyone was going up and putting in everything, all these big sums of money. And this widow comes up and puts in like this tiny little bit. And everybody was kind of speaking disparagingly of her. But Jesus commends her. Right? It says that they out of their abundance gave. Right? They were entrusted with more resources. And it was more so like a gift that they were given to steward. But she gave out of her non-gift. Out of her paucity of resources. And it was pleasing to the Lord and honoring to Him. Likewise, a situation may come up where we don't have a lot of psychological resilience. But what we have is asked of us. Where we don't have a lot of money, but what we have is asked of us. Where we don't have a lot of time, but what we have is asked of us. Where we don't have a particular gift of encouragement, but a brother needs a word of encouragement. Where we're not particularly good at washing bathroom sinks, but we're the last one out of the building and we realize that no one else has done it. Right? Not only should we think about, if we have one another in our hearts, not only should we think about using our gifts, our skills and our resources, to actually put into practice this disposition that we ought to have towards our brothers and sisters, but also we ought to put our non-gifts into practice as needed. We just ought to be willing to just serve. If someone is needed to step into this, it's not my forte, but all right, let me do it. There's a need. Let me meet it. Right? It's the, it's the whole idea of, you hear that phrase, somebody giving you the shirt off their back. It's not that they had two shirts. It's that they cared about the fact that you didn't have one. And they gave you not of their abundance, but sacrificially. Right? And this is pleasing to the Lord. Also, Christ Jesus 
has a great concern for each one of us, having made us his brothers at great cost to himself. We realize that he has loved us and he has served us. That he, has, he, he is the consummate example, more so even than Paul and Timothy. He has us in his heart to die together and to live together. Romans 6 tells us that when he died, we died with him. And that just as he was raised, so we have been raised to walk in newness of life. And one day, not only will our souls have experienced newness, but even our bodies will have experienced newness. And as he lives forevermore, so we will live forevermore. Christ has had concern for us, tied his fate to ours, given of himself for our good so that he wasn't just taught but put it into action so that we have been reconciled to God we are sons of the most high we are brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus we have fellowship with him by his spirit we are in familial relationship to him because he had us in his heart and took action for our sake. We need to show that same kind of familial concern, which he exemplified first and foremost, more so than anyone else, but which Paul and Timothy also exemplified here in 2 Corinthians. We ought to have that family familial concern which honors and emulates Christ. We ought to have one another in our hearts Recognize we're in this together. And then do good to one another with the gifts that we've been entrusted with and even the non-gifts. As we go into 2023, I just wanted to bring this pastoral exhortation. Let us make room in our hearts one for another.